0: So welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Albert Thompson, who is a historian based in the D.C. area, and he works uh, on, in the Social Justice Consortium at Howard University. So Albert, thank you for joining us today.
1: I'm glad to be here, Stephen. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay. Um, so Albert, I want people just to know a little bit more background about you, your studies, your interests. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been working on.
1: Sure, I mean the, the short version is I'm a historian of conflict and culture. I look at how culture and culture surrounding government influences and directs conflict and how that conflict often gets resolved. I started on this by studying the troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, so looking at the Catholic Protestant conflict, especially during the, the high period from 69, 1969 to 1981 up until the hunger strikes and the death of Bobby Sands to try to examine what was going on. Why did the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland fail? Why did Catholics feel a need to turn to the IRA and their insurgency? Why wasn't the British army able to just crush the insurgency um, you know, as people thought they could have? You know, why were Protestants unwilling to accept when the British army was victorious, just accept the peace? and to go along with equality? Why did they insist on domination? And understanding how in the non-racial context, these religious identities and these ethnic identities, British versus Irish, were driving a conflict when the solution to most outsiders you know, seemed pretty straightforward. Uh, but that, you know, it, as the British army said, uh, the Troubles was a time period where logic was often marginalized. And so logic doesn't always fit into when you get in these cultural conflicts. And then what happened is, I after I finished my master's at Norwich University, working on Northern Ireland, I started to think, what would happen if I were to take all the insight I gathered from studying the British state and Northern Irish state and the social conflict there? What if I applied that to the United States, to my own country, my own history? What lessons have I learned from studying others where I'm the outsider, and would it help me to understand the U.S. more, racial relations in the U.S. more? And so I started to kick around ideas of you know why does the United States Civil Rights Movement really take off after World War II? You know, what's happening? Why why is that such fertile ground? What has changed in white America? What's changed in Black America? And really what it comes down to is the changes that FDR and his administration uh, contributed to and really developed and led in the New Deal and how the New Deal ends up creating a new American state that has to address race differently because if you have a federal welfare state, that's going to encompass then 48 states and people of various ethnicities, but the federal government is for the most part wanting to treat people on the basis of being citizens and they have rights on the basis of being citizens. That's in conflict with the Southern racial order uh, where blacks are not citizens in the South. I mean, they may be citizens on paper according to the constitution, but effectively in the South, it's not that they're second class citizens, blacks are not citizens. They're subjects in the South and they're subjects of white supremacy. And that's in conflict with what FDR is doing, and so my studies focused on how the government trying to fix the Great Depression, that's really what FDR is trying to do, is trying to end the Depression and repair the economy. How that ends up creating a long-term systemic effect on race relations, and how the federal government deals with race that ultimately sets up the federal government to destroy white supremacy, or what we would call destroying the legal supports for white supremacy in the South.
0: So you have done a lot of work also with the American Solidarity Party. And I'm so if, if you could just explain a little bit about what the party's platform is, but also why as a historian, as someone who has a you know, deep understanding of, you know, the political cultural structures that have impacted the trajectory of American history, why are you choosing to be involved in this party out of the, the many you could be involved in?
1: Sure, it's actually pretty straightforward as well. Uh, the United States, unfortunately, Stephen, doesn't have what I wish we had, right? You know, being a historian, we have to learn not to live in fantasy. I wish we were a multi party democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not. We're a two party system. And that means that in it doesn't take much for one side to win, the Republicans or the Democrats, right? It's basically they're always, you know, 45 45. And then how is the, um, how is the, you know, the, People are going to break on the in the middle on on the center, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how are people going to break on the center? And if the center breaks one way or the other, uh, then that's the way it's going to go. So the Republicans don't have to do all that much to win an election. The Democrats don't have to do all that much to win an election. So to only have one party interested in racial justice is dangerous. If that's something you care about, mm-hmm. because if the only people who care about it are people on the quote unquote left then anytime they're out of power, then the things you care about don't get a hearing, right? That's just bad political strategy. Uh, And what you don't want is for the right, the religious right, the Christian right, or these other groups to not give a hearing to those issues. Cause then whenever they're in power, which again, doesn't take much in a two-party system, then you're out of whack. So what would be the best way to start to introduce ideas of of multi-ethnic democracy of real concern for social justice, of real concern for uh, racial justice and basically American national solidarity uh, than to actually start trying to do that on a party that might be more identified uh, with religious groups, the right, Catholic social thought, et cetera. Uh, Because if you can start that becoming an issue on the right, then you have hope where it becomes a bipartisan issue. Like if you really wanna see change, you make racial justice bipartisan. You don't make it a weapon that the Democrats or the left use to beat up the Republicans or the right. You mm-hmm. make it something where there's a consensus around it, where both parties say, this is something we should do to move our country forward. What got me started on this thinking was actually a long time ago when I was younger and I was a pro-Israel activist. And I was in college as an undergraduate you know, 15 years ago and I was, I was working on stuff having to do with Israel. And I realized that Israel was fairly easy during the Bush years because it was bipartisan. You know, the Democratic party consensus was support Israel. The Republican party consensus was support Israel. And therefore, because that was the mode for the entirety of the Bush years, it was always pushing on an open door. And I really started to notice how things moved. Like people would say, oh, people are doing stuff on Israel for this reason or that reason. And it was usually nonsense. It was usually pretty straightforward both parties had a consensus that that was what was good for America. So it wasn't really a hard sell. And what that taught me was that if you make an issue bipartisan, it really doesn't matter who's in power. You can push your issues and push them effectively. And so if you're talking about racial justice, the real struggle right now to get people to understand it's important is on the right. And so that means talking to pro-life voters, uh, people who are more about religious liberty, more about traditional values. If you can get people on that side of the spectrum, thinking about racial justice and it becomes important to them, then you've basically won half the battle because you're on the way to making it bipartisan. And I think the American Solidarity Party is a good way to make these kinds of thoughts, to make social justice a bipartisan issue. So that then the Republicans and others will pick up those ideas. That's how third parties tend to influence the United States, to big parties steal their ideas.
0: Okay, so the point isn't necessarily for these third parties to win, but to propagate certain ideas, to make them more accessible to the mainstream parties, you're saying.
1: Yeah, like you want them to win, but you also recognize that's really hard. So you Mm -hmm. want to win, but plan B is please steal my ideas, Yeah, right? If if you truly believe that your ideas are gonna make the country better, then you don't really care who implements them, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need credit. You know, it's old saying, imagine what we can accomplish if we don't care who gets the credit. So if, we, if the third parties are able to make their ideas more prominent and the big parties say to remain relevant, we have to steal their ideas, I say you applaud that. You've now won. right? If you get the Republicans to adopt the viewpoint that racial justice is good for the country, it's good for national unity, it makes America stronger, especially in the face of you know, people like the Chinese, the Chinese um, Communist Party. That is looking for ways to divide America, because that's what you do when you have an opponent. You have a country that you're adversarial with. You look for ways to try to divide them. The fact that the Chinese and the Russians are, you know, looking at uh, racial issues as a way to divide America isn't shocking. I mean, that's what you do when you have enemies and opponents. Fine. So if we recognize that we take that away from them, is good for the country. In America, that has racial solidarity across the color line is a stronger America and one that is less likely to have its enemies able to manipulate it and turn it against itself. Please steal that idea, right? Republicans mm-hmm. and Democrats, please do that. That's better for all of us. Now, if an ASP candidate is able to win an election on those values, that's great too because then you're still investing to calls of national solidarity and racial justice, which for me are synonymous. Racial justice to me is about national unity and about strengthening the country. It's not just about lifting up one ethnic group, although that would be part of it. It Mm -hmm. is about lifting up the entire American nation state and all the American people.
0: What, What would you say to people who think that you should try to change the parties from within rather than working through a third party?
1: They both work. Right. I mean, both Mm -hmm. methods work. We can look at it this way. The Libertarian Party has never gotten more than, what, five, six percent in the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Yet we see that the Republicans in the 80s and 90s ran with a lot of libertarian ideas to their to an extent to their detriment. Right. The Republicans stole so many libertarian ideas, went so far that they almost forgot what Republicans looked like in the 70s. It all became about, you know, give business whatever they want, get out of the way of the economy. You know, so the libertarians without winning any presidential elections were able to affect a lot of Republican policies, and they would be very influential with things like the Tea Party. I mean, in many ways, things that I would disagree with, but things that I can at least give them credit for being very influential in shaping the conversation in Washington without having a, you know, a single member of the House or the Senate elected as a libertarian.
0: Mm-hmm. So then, let's go more in depth into the party's platform. So the major um, kind of outlook of the economic policy is, you know, rooted in distributism. So can you explain a little bit about what distributism is for people who don't really know much about it?
1: Sure, distributism, in a nutshell, is widespread property ownership. Uh, that is what it is. So people often say, is it socialism? No, it's not socialism because it's not about state ownership. Well, then they say, well, is it, is it capitalism this? We're like, well, it's probably closer to capitalism than socialism, but it's capitalism with imposed limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you you really don't want the concentration of wealth because it's bad morally, it's inefficient economically, and it's corrupting to the government system. Uh, disempowering people is corrupting. What I mean by that is, yes, you know, absolute power corrupts, but you know, Stephen, another thing corrupts, powerlessness. When people are powerless, it tempts the powerful to be abusive, to do things that they wouldn't do if they knew there was going to be significant and likely successful pushback. And what distributism does is it redistributes economic power into the hands of more private citizens, not the state. But in the hands of private citizens so more people are owners of the means of production more people control their own labor and charge the prices they want more people own their own businesses and their own homes that empowers people so that they are not dependent on big government or big business Uh, they're able to form their own communities and work together at life-minded individuals uh, to sustain themselves and have healthy communities now that doesn't mean you this is gonna create a panacea where you don't still need a social safety net. But it does mean that more independent people have the freedom to be more innovative, to be safer. It cuts down on mortality and morbidity because people are are healthy. They have a stake in life and in society. A part of the social breakdown we see right now is you've got a lot of Americans who don't have a stake in society because of the concentration of wealth. Or if they're students, they're just under mountains of debt. So instead of having the freedom to innovate or to try, you know they've got to take the first job they get so that they can then pay off that debt. That's not healthy for our society. Distributism aims to make a society where more people are economically independent so that they can do the things that matter to them. They are their own bosses as much as possible. And that creates a society that is more stable, that's more compassionate, that's more resilient and more robust. I mean, think of uh, coronavirus and the vulnerabilities that have been revealed in our system of having so much wealth concentrated in the hands of a few places so that when they shut down, all society breaks down. People are losing jobs left and right. They don't have the freedom to do the things, to have the resiliency if more and more Americans were really the owners of their own fate.
0: So I think it's also important to mention how the principles of solidarity and subsidiarity play a role in this because you know, the emphasis is mostly on the community, not solely on the individual or on the state, because it's understood that, you know, as individuals, we need our own agency. We, you know, we have to have our our freedom respected, but our freedom is empowered when we belong to something greater than us, when we feel like we're valued, we're loved, we matter. Um, And at the same time, that the state as an entity is not a sufficient source, a sufficient source of empowerment, because it's so abstract and so removed from my daily life. So I think you know what distributism does is that it empowers the place where the person can be most um, best understood as an individual, but an individual in relation to others. Um, and I, I don't know. Like when I think about a lot of the discourse I'm hearing today when it comes to racial equality, what I think I'm hearing is a lot of this kind of neoliberal emphasis on the individual and their agency. Um, Sometimes I hear people talking about like uplifting the community, but in actuality, it seems to be that, you know, the vision of black empowerment is not so much a communal vision, it's more of an individualist one, which ends up disadvantaging those who are more vulnerable, those who aren't able to make it to the top of the, the system. So what would you say about how like distributism can further the cause of racial justice, um, uplifting actual black communities and not just individuals?
1: Well, see, here's one of the issues that I think you've hit upon. If the answer to say what people, it's hilarious, what people call racist capitalism Is supposedly Black capitalism, then I think they've kind of missed what the problem is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If capitalism is exploitive, just making it Black isn't going to fix those tendencies within capitalism. And, you know, we're we're not trying to change the color of the people who are engaging in economic exploitation. That's not the fix, right? And so you're right, a lot of it does end up sounding like, well, you know, we just need to change that. And I'm going, that's, that's not really what we're trying to do. If you really want, you know, this racial and economic justice, you don't want the people who are doing the bad things to look like, you know, the rainbow coalition of all these different, you know, colors of human beings and ethnicities, because then what you've really got is more people participating in exploiting their fellow man. It's not what we want. What we really want is something where people are empowered as part of their communities. So one of the reasons that distributism emphasizes small over big as much as possible is that it roots the individual to a community uh, and roots a business or an enterprise to the community. When it becomes so big that it's you know nationwide or it's international, it's not really rooted to a particular community. It's not really invested or leveraged in that community. So that the fate of the community is not really tied to the fate of the individual or the fate of the enterprise. Now the distributors argument be that's unhealthy, that the human being, the individual and the community need to have their fates linked together because we are most fully human as we work and live in community, that the, individ- that the individualist lifestyle isn't actually a very humane lifestyle because humans are not made to be individuals, they're, they're be individualist. They're individuals who are made to really actuate and grow and develop as part of communities. And when you have that worldview that the human being is most healthy within a community, then what you're really emphasizing as enterprises and businesses and networks and families, or what I like to say, you know, a A nation is a federation of families, right? This idea that you are a collection of different families that then come together to form a community, those communities then become localities, and then it's just growing out from there. So if your first unit of the individual is the community of the family, and then the family is then part of that larger network, what's happening is you are then growing and developing healthy relationships that are your support system. They are your system of love and care. They are your system of creativity and innovation. Uh, They are your system of leisure. I mean, we've gotten so hung up on work that we've forgotten about the beauty of leisure and arts and creativity. All of that is growing, you know, from smaller to larger. So we don't start in this distributist mindset and the solidarity mindset and the austerity mindset. You don't start with the nation. You start first with the, the family. The individual is first part of a family, you're born into a family, that's your first network. Then you expand out from there into the community then in the American federal system, you would expand out from there to the states and then you expand out from there to the federal government, to the nation state. But those larger entities only get involved, should only get involved in areas where the local community and the family can't do things for themselves. But the goal is to empower the family and the local community to do as much for themselves as possible. And now here's where this becomes important for the racial justice aspect. If you live in a fallen society like I actually think that social, the social justice warriors don't go far enough in their condemnation, because I think if you take the Christian mindset of sin, then the problem is even worse than what they could imagine, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because we're all mired within the sin problem, right? If you take that seriously, then it's even worse than what they what they say it is. It's, it's yeah. stupendously bad, mm-hmm. because we're all corrupted by that. So what you want is if you understand you're in a system where the people are corrupted, sinful, and there are biases and racial animus, You don't want the outer system to have too much power because people will be inclined to abuse it. One of the protections against that abuse is the strengthening of the family and the community to have the resources to do as many things as possible themselves. See, this is what I saw when I was studying Northern Ireland. You You had this Northern Irish state that was a devolved government of the United Kingdom. And it had, the, it had a very large hand in the economy, and it could redistribute housing. So a lot of the argument was over housing. And so with the government having what was an okay public housing system, the problem is that they simply gave better housing to Protestants and discriminated against, Protest, against Catholics. It wasn't that they didn't have housing, is that because of the biases and the discrimination within the system of Northern Ireland, they simply use the larger welfare state, which people often think is the solution, but they use the state to discriminate. So, you know, these people got resources, these people did not get resources on the basis of their identity. Mm-hmm. And so one of the problems you end up with is you don't take that into account the, the sin problem, the, the real uh, problem with human nature and human behavior is that the more you disempower the family and the local community, the more you empower against them outsiders who may not have their best interests at heart and may actually have a desire for discrimination or oppression. Safest bet then is to empower those families and those communities to have the resources necessary to provide and do for themselves. And then they can engage with the outside world and outside networks on a more equal and equitable footing. And that's gonna lead to better outcomes because they've been empowered to resist oppression and manipulation.
0: So this makes me think of a conversation that I had. Um, There is a group of students, mostly uh, people of color with um, a democratic politician. I'm not gonna say who for now, but a student asked this politician, you know, what do you think is most necessary for uh, young kids of color coming from lower income backgrounds to succeed to really make it in the future. And he said that the future is all in STEM education. It's all in, you know, basically getting involved in a job field that's guaranteed to be lucrative so that you can make money and then you can, you know, give money back to your community afterwards. And And it's just this comment gave me pause because it made me realize, like, for a lot of people, the vision of success is really predicated on the individual's capacity to earn capital for themselves. And then, yes, if they want to, they can give some back to the community. But it's not really seen as uh, moving forward together or like being more deeply rooted in where you come from. It's about like, let me make it. And then, you know, as an afterthought, I can give money. Um, And I just see how not only is this not promising on an economic level, because it's like it's nice that some people are going to make it into STEM and make a lot of money, and then the rest of the people are left behind, but also on an emotional, existential level, being uprooted from family, from community, not maintaining those ties, leaves people feeling very lonely, kind of empty. it just makes me wonder like, why, why are so many people sticking to this narrative of, you know, you go and make it, but then you can give back to the community later.
1: I don't know. So one of the issues with that, that politician, whoever it was, is that that's not really addressing um, inequality and the radical redistribution of property and income um, towards the upper classes or those in those fields. So it doesn't address that issue. You know, Here's where we have to depart from, I think, people with that worldview, is that the the Christian democratic tradition uh, of Europe, which is part of what the Solidarity Movement is a part of, doesn't believe in the idea of of an equality that's not based upon distributive justice, which produces equal opportunities Mm -hmm. that achieves a social readjustment instead of social uniformity. And that's what we're after. We don't want uniformity, because if you're saying everyone to succeed needs to go into STEM, you're actually creating a form of economic uniformity where those are the only paths to success. Whereas we're saying, well, if that's the case, what we really need is a social readjustment, uh, where you've got real diversity and more paths to success within society. Uh, and that doesn't require people to leave their communities and all go to San Francisco, New York or Chicago, even though those are great places and there's, there's wonderful people who live there and there's nothing against those people. I mean, part of what I think we do well in this movement is that we don't buy into the city versus rural divide. You know, all of those people are our fellow citizens, whether they're in the urban centers, the suburbs, exurbs, or the countryside. All of them are our neighbors who we're supposed to love, love our neighbors as ourselves. But what I'm saying is that we shouldn't have the idea that the only way to be successful or to make something of yourselves is to leave your community and go to those areas. There shouldn't be any reason that you have to just go into those fields. I mean, there's going to be some people who just aren't called to those fields. Uh, They're not interested in them. That's that's not where their gifts and talents lie. And so if you have an economy where those are only fields where there's a future, then you got to say, okay, this is where we're producing uniformity and we don't want it. What we really need is a social readjustment that allows people to have more diversity because it enables them to develop in the manner that both suits their desires and abilities. And that's one of the things that Christian democracy um, advocates for is recognizing that the individual is an individual within a community who they and their community have their own gifts, talents, and abilities and desires, which should be respected and that the systems should be designed to help them fulfill that. As individuals and as a community, not separate from one another.
0: And I think what you it's said, not a, yeah, but like the calling. Then not everybody has the same calling. We're all unique as individuals. Some people may be called to go to college, study STEM. Somebody might call to do the humanities. Some might do, you know, uh, vocational trade. Some might be busy, uh, you know, a store owner, a restaurant owner, like. And I think that's what's so key about the kind of distributist view, vision. Is that everybody should have that opportunity to live, you know, a stable, meaningful life, whether they do go off to college, get a high-paying job, or if they're, you know, working at a mechanic shop or open up a restaurant. Um, and what I, what I'm curious to know, though, so obviously Black Lives Matter as a movement has probably the most, uh, has been, been the most vocal in the current struggle for racial equality. How much do you think the movement, which, you know, is very broad, it's hard to kind of narrow down one main platform, but how much do you think it encompasses some of the ideals of distributism and solidarity?
1: It's hard to say because African-American movements have always been broad and diverse. Mm-hmm. And others tend to join Black movements, uh, in part because Black Americans have, by necessity, become very good at organizing and, uh, and very good at creating movements that other people want to join, you know, whether it was abolitionism, um, whether it was the long civil rights movement after slavery, uh, whether it's the social justice movement now. So it's, it's one of the things that we actually do well is in, in getting these things started but it's hard to say because you don't have the same black media you used to have we used to have um, prior to integration a much more robust black media uh, that was much better at covering the diversity within the black community and in the movements associated with the black community whereas now so much of the media is concentrated Uh, the mainstream media we could just call the white media uh, or the corporate media is much more concentrated that it doesn't really cover variety very well. And so unless you're really out there and COVID has been a problem, it's prevented a lot of people from really traveling like they would have to really get on the ground in different areas uh, and see what the movements are saying. It's hard to say. And even the Black Lives Matter as a movement is so diffuse that it's a, I, I often say it's useful as a slogan, but to actually call it a movement is not always very useful because movement is much broader than people associated with Black Lives Matter as an organization, or even tangentially associated with any of the offshoots, but it's, you know, it's a useful term and I get why people use it. I will say that in my experience, I have seen people who are open to a distributors mindset mm-hmm. among social, ju- social justice advocates uh, in Minneapolis, okay. uh, people who I was able to, to meet after the George Floyd situation. Um, who are, I mean, they're being organized by tours. There's a guy out there who owns own restaurant. Um, he's an immigrant uh, from the Caribbean, and he's organizing folks to build new models of sustainable development for their community in Minneapolis. Uh, and working with the local business owners, trying to empower mm-hmm. uh, more minority business owners who supply services to other minority businesses. So to give an example of their idea, and one I worked with them on to plan for a few months, is the idea that you, know, you set up a, a network to help the local business owners in these underserved communities to supply one another. So let's say you've got one business owner who is operating, say a copy shop, right? And you've got these other business owners down the street who need papers and flyers printed, but they haven't met and connected each other. Well, why don't you go into those communities and create a Rolodex? And you start connecting all the different people who have different skills and abilities so that they can help each other grow their businesses. And they don't have to go to outsiders who, don't, who aren't really invested in the community. So you're linking people together who, whose kids go to the same schools, who play on the same playgrounds, who have the same concerns around police, and you're linking them up together as business partners and, and community activists so that they all have a stake in actually seeing the situation improve. And then you but and then you also do it with health as well. So let's say they're stressed about their business. Well, are there people in the community who are experts in mental health, who provide mental health services? Connect them with those people so they're still sticking within people within their communities and they're helping one another on the matter and the things that matter. And this produces a new autonomy in what you might call family politics. Uh, so that when people are discussing those kitchen table issues and they're discussing them politically, they're talking about it with their neighbors who they're also working with in these businesses and these these networks. And what you're doing is you're bridging the alienation so that people who may have had, you know, businesses down the street from one another but never talked and never spoke, you're deliberately creating these forums where these people are talking again to know each other and they're no longer just autonomous individuals passing each other on the sidewalk. You know, they have real connections in real communication, but you're doing so deliberately because you realize that the, the chain has been broken, right? The, this chain of being that's been connecting all of us has been broken. And so you deliberately start connecting them, and then they together start having conversations with their local police officers. And you're, you're building on this model that's sustainable, but it's about empowering the community to be strong. So those people up in Minnesota, uh, I actually am um, uh, glad to know them. They're doing that work, you know, strengthening their own area to where at one point I was like, man, I wish I was up in Minneapolis with these folks. They're, yeah. you know, they're really getting it. And these were these were African-Americans. These were Afro-Caribbeans, you know. Asian Americans, Jewish Americans, all these different people talking together about how they could make their part of Minneapolis where this horrible event happened better and how they could really get to know each other. You know, they were talking about, you know, after they really got to know each other, some of them started talking about going on a retreat together. You know, a bunch of the different business leaders from all these different backgrounds, you know, just going and really building community. That's the sort of thing that I think catches on where people hear what distributists and what Christian democracy is really all about. That they realize that it's not about whatever things the religious right was on in the 80s, whatever. It's about a deeper vision. And for me, I remember that this vision is what repaired Germany after the destruction of Nazism that pretty much destroyed their society and their communities and it was the vision of Ottenau and others about a new way of viewing humanity and community that rebuilt them, I think it's useful for rebuilding us out of these, these micro tragedies that we're having in the United States. You know, Each of these controversies and killings and school shootings are micro, micro tragedies that tear at the fiber of our country. And this can begin to repair those wounds uh, in micro. And then eventually as we grow this, the macro change you'll see happen.
0: Because mm. everything that you're saying to me sounds so sensible and actually effective in a concrete way? And I just wonder, this isn't the main narrative that we're hearing in the mainstream. Um, either we're hearing you know something I don't know. I, I just feel like the mainstream narratives that we're hearing are set up to be divisive or set up to kind of have people clashing when in reality, what you're saying seems like it's reasonable for everybody. Um, So I don't know, like, I'm just thinking about a lot of the people who do take an interest in furthering the cause for racial justice, then the kind of discourse, the rhetoric that I'm hearing, again, I have the fear, the concern that it can be very divisive, because it seems to be very focused on abstractions, very much focusing on kind of performative gestures that don't make that much of a concrete difference in the lives of everyday people and i think about like i don't know just a lot of the kind of racial sensitivity training based on you know whether robin d'angelo or ibram x kendi it's i think there's a good intention there but because it's very abstract i think it runs the risk of being divisive i'm curious to hear your thoughts on it or if you what redeeming qualities you may see there
1: if any Sure. I, the only thing I would say about that is we're a country where people want to seem to be good. This mm-hmm. has been an American thing from the beginning of the country. People want to be seen to be good and moral. You know, um, Alexia de Coqueville talks about this yeah. uh, in Democracy in America. The problem with this is that we sometimes make it very easy for Americans to be seen to be good and moral without actually requiring them to do something and a lot of these things do that. Uh, They make it very easy for someone to perform something that looks like they're being good, decent, and moral and being giving of themselves without actually requiring real sacrifice. And for those who then see through it and don't wanna do something that's just performative, it then becomes divisive for them because maybe, I mean, there are always going to be bad actors who just don't care one way or the other, right? So let's just, we'll just admit that up front. But there are some people who may disagree with what's going on because they say, this is just performative, nothing's really changing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do something that's meaningless. And then others will then say, well, if you don't do this, this must mean you're a bad person. And then once you do that, we're down the slope of name calling and division. And I think that's part of what the problem is, is that a lot of these things make it very easy to appear to be good and caring and tolerant uh, without actually being those things and that some people see through it. And then they say, why are, why are we doing this? It's wasting my time. Let me get back to work. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand the I understand both the desire to be seen as good and the desire to do something um, else at work and not have to do that. And I think one of the ways we fix this is to give people, like you said, things that are not abstract concrete ways that can begin to change uh, their culture, and especially we're talking about the workplace that enables them to do a better job. See, for me, the the purpose of, of equity, diversity and inclusion should be, should be, should be to enable your organization to do whatever its job is better. So that if your job is to make widgets and you realize you have a monoculture that prevents you from making the best widgets possible because you're not opening and welcoming to the best talent available, was maybe from better from different backgrounds then you have to do better to be welcoming to those diverse talents so you can actually have the best people in place so you can make the best widgets so then it adds equity and value to your business to be diverse because you're getting in a wider talent pool that can make your product better right that's to be the ultimate goal we make widgets We want to get the best people. We're having trouble getting the best people because uh, they're not feeling welcome here. So we wanna make them welcome so that we get the best people. So that getting the best people doesn't mean you have a coworker who's unqualified. It means you have an even better coworker that you had before because you've got a wider talent pool to select from. And we're all gonna do better and grow together as a company. Everyone gets Christmas bonuses. Right. You know, that should be the actual goal that we're going to make ourselves better so that we're attracting more people. And there's multiple ways to do that. Uh, We just tend to go with the easy ways that are performative rather than the real hard ways of self-examination. But then again, I don't think that's particularly a problem of white America. I think that's particularly a problem of America, America, Mm -hmm. Uh, because, again, if you're going with the Christian Democratic worldview, the, the view of the human being, Uh, Human beings are mired in sin and sin gets in the way of us doing the things that we should do. You know, as Paul said, you know, I do the thing I would not, and he's struggling and St. Paul is discussing the struggle and he's talking about the struggle within. Well, that's what we're all dealing with, which is why I say the problem is much deeper than just uh, a system that can be tweaked here or there. The problem is actually within us, uh, which is why the answer ultimately is much deeper than just improving the system, although actively trying to make the system better uh, is part of it. Uh, the ultimate solution is is a much deeper uh, spiritual reformation that is needed uh, for all of us.
0: Yeah, and I think you said it in the beginning that this fixation on being morally pure and proving it to everyone like that itself is very divisive because it's not. I mean, no one wants to be told that you know they're not as moral as the other. It's it's not very uh, appealing. But the other thing that I'm seeing is. Um, this focus on identity rather than, um, rather than on like individual identity over belonging to community, belonging to family, ethnic background, religion, whatever it may be. Um, And it's, I do, I find it ironic that this is kind of becoming the cause of the so-called left identity uh, politics. When in reality, this focus on individual identity is extremely capitalistic, very neoliberal um and not empowering of communities peoples as a whole um and i think there is like there are half truths here in this uh focus on identity like there is the reality that you know if you're a person of color you're more likely to be at a disadvantage economically in this country if you're white or white passing you're probably not going to have as hard of a time you know i mean it's depends on the individual circumstances of course but um I don't know, I'm curious to hear what you would have to say about mm, discussions on privilege, on identity, how much, um, how much attention should we give to identity as a category? At what point does it become distracting from the real issues at stake? What, what would you make of this?
1: Well, I think we don't give enough attention to identity as a real category. I think we give okay. a lot of attention to wanting to pretend to give attention to identity as a category. Okay. So for example, and I think we discussed this uh, last year and we discussed you know, my issue with the term white privilege is that you know, if you're in Appalachia and you are broke and you have no social capital, white privilege is not helping you because mm-hmm. you're surrounded primarily by other broke, poor white folk. And so being white there isn't giving you any advantage. You're just another poor person. And so these, these issues have to be very, very targeted to who are we talking about? Uh, to be you know, white in Manhattan, is very different than to be white in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these are not the same place. And so when you just say blanket terms like white privilege, small, it's like, you know, if we're not being specific, this is just not helpful. Um, it's not helping me to understand the, the situation of someone who may be in a very poor part of the country and happens to be white. You know, it's, it's just not useful. And so identity has to be taken more seriously because it's not just race, um, it's also geography. You know, if you're in the Great Lakes region, your identity is gonna be different than people who are in say, Seattle or Portland. You know, regardless of whether or not you have the same skin color, right? That's, your culture is gonna be a little different. Uh, your, your school systems are different. Your weather patterns are different. Uh, the industries that influence you are different. Your religious outlook may be different. You know, if you're in the Great Lakes, you're more likely to be influenced by, you know, a Scandinavian or Lutheran outlook as opposed to people who may be more likely to be old mainlines or Presbyterians or Episcopalians in places like Portland, right? You know, Based on the migration and settler patterns of 19th century. So these things are important. It is important whether or not you're growing up rural Catholic or urban Catholic, right? It's important whether or not you're growing up Jewish or Muslim or or Buddhist. I mean, these things are important. So it's not just a racial and, and ethnic, you know, religious identity matters too geographic identity. Are you a New Englander? Are you a Southerner? Right. What does being a Southerner mean to you? I mean, there was once upon a time where Black Americans never considered themselves Southerners. Um, you know, The whole idea that Black people now call themselves Southerners is more of a recent phenomenon after the Civil Rights Movement, where they actually could take ownership of the South. Otherwise, Black people were Black people, and Southerners were white people in the South. You know, they were Southerners. They were people who could belong to the territory, whereas Black Americans could never see themselves that way because of their oppression there. So, I mean, that identity has now changed. you got Black folks who will call themselves Southerners. So that's why I say that, you know, identity needs to be taken more seriously. Instead, we have a very facile uh, view of it where we don't look at the real diversity. You know, it matters if you are someone from the Ozarks. I mean, you are, you know, that's going to be a different identity than someone who's from, you know, South Central Florida. Uh, These things are important, and I think they have to be part of the conversation of understanding the diversity of America, because you're not just a country that's diverse racially, we're a country that's diverse in terms of our environments, our climates. I mean, we're a country that stretches from Florida to Hawaii to Alaska to Maine, right? That's a big, diverse country, and I think we sometimes play games with the, the real diversity of our identities, and we try to slot people into just these racial categories, and pretend nothing else matters. I think it's harmful and hurtful because we don't see in many ways, the beauty that is our country and that we have people from a variety of different backgrounds who all have different understandings and experiences and abilities that can be used to actually strengthen us because that diversity of thought, I'm all about this idea we have different thoughts and ideas and recognitions of different points of reality. That's helpful uh, to help you really to see solutions the problems facing humanities that people in smaller countries or in countries that are more monoculture, just don't have the ability to see things. And I don't think we as Americans tap into that because we play games with identity as opposed to really embracing uh, the distinctiveness. So to use myself as an example, I'm a Virginian. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a Virginian who loves being a Virginian. I love my home state a lot, and I love being in the Mid-Atlantic. I also love that we've got some southern ways, and I love being a Northern Virginian from Fairfax County, which is General Washington's County, which I'm always have to tell people, you know, Mount Vernon is in my co- county, so, you know, there, you know, George Washington is buried in my county and not yours, so take that, right? You know, but this pride and identity is, is useful because it's part of who I am and it, it frames my outlook. But then I should recognize that someone from New Jersey, you know, New Jersey is gonna be important to who they are into their outlook even if they're also black even if they're also a black man like I am you know them being from jersey is going to be important to them so that even that produces diversity so that's what I mean by identity becoming more important is that we stop justifying identity is oh you're that color you're that color no that's your identity well you know my identity is more than that you know it is that but it's also and right Mm-hmm. I think that's more serious and too often in America we are I mean let's be frank we're we're shallow about these things and I think we need yeah. to be more serious.
0: Yeah because I don't know like when I think about my own identity I definitely think the fact that people perceive me as white does give me certain privileges especially you know I'm working in an inner city when uh, I pass by police officers I pro- I usually never get pulled over if I'm speeding I know that my skin color does have some reason to do with that. But the reality is my identity is more than this. There's a lot of nuance. There are a lot of particular details that make up who I am. Um, and I don't know, like it makes me think about when I, when I hear people talking about white people as a, having a particular culture, uh, because my background is Mediterranean, it's from Greece and Italy mostly... I don't relate all the time when people are talking about quote unquote white culture. And I I don't know, when when you look at what this erasure of the nuances, the particularities of people's identities, the effect that it has is that, you know, we rely on these abstractions, which again, create more division, But I think make people more vulnerable to being manipulated by those in power, by the predominant narrative, because they're no longer connected to something concrete, something particular to where they come from and who they are. Um, And it's ultimately disempowers communities, you know. And part of what I'm thinking, though, is that, like, to really look at each person and the concrete factors that make up who they are that's not as easy as just turning everyone into this abstraction. It's easier to love an, abstract than a, an abstraction than a concrete person because we're all different. We have nuances, we have quirks, we have annoying aspects too. So it's, you know, I think it's just leads to this question of love. What does it mean to love our neighbor as they are and not just with the identity we slap on them, you know? Um, but just to, to wrap things up, for people who do have an interest in you know, furthering the cause of racial equality, equality for all people in general, but who feel disillusioned with these more abstract narratives, what advice do you have for people to take concrete action and to you know, actually make a difference in their own communities?
1: Uh, There's the same thing I tell everyone. And it is, if you're in a neighborhood that is all white, or you're in a neighborhood that's all black or all Asian or all Latino, you know, it's all Mediterranean, all Middle East, North African, pick your category, right? Don't feel bad about that. Don't go out of your way to feel you have to go to some place where there are people who are not like you. If you're like me who grew up in a neighborhood that's diverse, you know, where I used to walk to school, you know, every day with a, a, with a, um, and I was in first grade with an Asian girl because we were, you know, we were our neighbors and we always to school every day. For me, it was natural to hang out with Asian Hispanic kids because that was who was in my neighborhood. But if you're not in those neighborhoods, what I advise people to do is don't go out there, you know, kind of diversity friend shopping, mm-hmm. right? You know, looking for someone who's different and say, I want to befriend that person. No, what you need to do is stick with your community and figure out how can you make your community better, mm-hmm. regardless of what your community is. And so the way you make this situation better is you embrace who your community is. You know, if your community is say Lubbock, Texas, then you embrace Lubbock. You know, you love your community and you go and be part of whatever's going on in your community. That could mean joining a social services club. You know, if you're into the environment, tackling pollution in your city. If you care about family issues, going and volunteering at a shelter for abused families. Like if that's where your heart is, you know, go do that. If your thing is the art scene, go get involved in the art scene in your area. Or if your town doesn't have an art scene, you go create it. The, the real way to begin to address this is to start where you are by really knowing your own community, uh, getting to love the people there regardless of their quirks and difficulties, because that's where you are, that's your community, and work on improving that. And then it spreads out from there. And if you're already in an area that's diverse, you still do the exact same thing: get to know and love the people in your community. You know, do you know your neighbor? I mean, there are some people I know where they don't know their next door neighbor's name, right? You know, I know my next door neighbor's name. You know, I make sure to, to talk to him and know his wife. You know, I know my neighbors across the, who cross the uh, the way from me. You know, that's that's where you start. You know, do you know your neighbors? On your left and your right. You know, that's where I, I really tell people is you start there and then you expand from there. And if you're in an area that's monoculture or homogeneous, fine, that's where you are. If you're in an area that's diverse, great, that's where you are. Either way, start with your local community, getting to know people, caring about the issues. And it may be that you don't know enough about your own community to know what the, the problems and concerns are. In which case, go find out because, you know, that's your home. Treat your community as an extension of your home and love and care for just like you care for your house or your apartment. That's where we start. And that's how you get involved in these issues of justice. And then it grows from there because you're creating an attitude of welcomingness and, and being neighborly. That's what you wanna do to further these calls because a big part of what racial justice really comes down to is that for hundreds of years in America, people could live in close proximity to one another and never ever consider the people different from them to be their neighbors or people with human dignity. And the way we reverse that is by treating our neighbors as our neighbors and beginning to really see everyone around us, regardless of who they are as people with human dignity. That's how we reverse this. So start where you are rather than trying to go across the country around the world, trying to solve problems. I assure you that if you're living in an area with human beings, you have problems right where you are.
0: Yeah. And once again, it's easier said than done to really encounter your neighbor as they are, you know, with all their, with all the things that make them who they are, rather than loving the abstraction of who you think they are. But The reality is that justice requires work, requires love, you know? So I think this is, uh, it's just a breath of fresh air to hear, again, like concrete ways that we can make a difference um, that are fulfilling for us, but also for the people around us. Um, So with that, uh, Albert, do you wanna plug any, uh, any ways that people can keep up with your work, any places they can follow you online?
1: Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at Iron Professor, but I will warn you, I'm in the middle of writing my dissertation, so I'm not tweeting a lot these days. Okay. Um, but if you want to follow me there, feel free. It's uh, Twitter, you know, at Iron Professor. It's a nickname my students gave me uh, because uh, I-, I guess it was the way I was lecturing. I became very passionate uh, when I was lecturing on the Second World War one day, and they, <laughs> that name stuck. So I-, I decided to just keep it because I thought it was hilarious my students gave that to me
0: all right so albert thompson the iron professor thank you for joining us